Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. The perfect existence for a company is where you're delivering really great product to your customers and your employees are growing all the time. Like if an employee feels like I go into work every day and I make a meaningful contribution and the customer comes out and says, I love the people, I love the engineering, I love the results I get from this small business, that's a match that is really unparalleled. I hear Jesus's words call to me when he says, to whom much is given, much is required. I hear that as a way to shape a business. Don't be stingy. Focus on the customers. Focus on the employees. We were part of what I feel like was the first major boom of the side business, especially in the early 2000s and especially with the coming online of the whole internet revolution. You can have something that you do for your 40s or 45 hours or 50 hour a week job, but you can also do something on the side that is meaningful and moves your career forward and sort of gives you an opportunity to earn some extra money and learn a lot of what it takes to do all that. I am excited to be here with you on this Friday morning, Mr. Fred Fouth. And Fred has a special place in my heart. I don't think he knows this or realizes the impact he had, but I was introduced to Fred because he was, what was your official title at Praxis? I was a capture manager. Okay, capture manager. But to me, he was larger than life. So I had just started my business, Nyla, and Fred was leading capture, which is overseeing a huge, massive proposal for his company. Do you remember how many subs were on that proposal? The capture effort for that job that we were on was, I think there were 55 subcontractors. Yeah. Hot damn. I had no idea it was that many. Wow. It was a lot. And what was the total value of the contract? It was over a hundred million, right? Yes. Yeah, probably closer up to 150. So he led capture for a contract with 50 subs. Can you imagine not even individual people, 50 individual people, but 50 subcontracting companies of which I was a burgeoning company at the time. I wasn't an official company until I had my facilities clearance. So yes, I had the company established and I was running around as a 1099, but I was introduced to Fred because I had overseen a huge portion of the work that was encompassed on the contract. So Fred said, all right, well, welcome to our team and interviewed me a lot and then took whatever I said and translated it into all the other million things that he had heard and knew from experience and put it together in the proposal. Yeah, we had a good time on that one. And we won that one. So that was great. Yeah, I used to go around and be like, well, you know, I've helped on some technical volumes and we happen to get rated very well and win. So the first proposal I was on as my company, Nyla, we won together. And then Fred let me take him to lunch and pick his brain. So in our world, there is not a lot published and it's all word of mouth and super secret squirrel meetings. And there was a not so super secret meeting that I had no idea about (laughs) named after a guy, the Tony Ward lunch. And Fred said, oh, well, you got to go to the Tony Ward lunch. And I was like, oh, mind blown. 
I think you took me to the first lunch. Uh, that was the, one of the main nuggets I remember from that lunch. I'm trying to think what else. And that you love buffalo chicken salad. <laughs> I do love buffalo chicken salad. That's Ask true. Amanda. I don't know why I remember what people eat, but I think you were like, this is my like go-to salad. <laughs> it is. And you know what? Once the pandemic is over, we're going to go back out and get another buffalo chicken salad. <laughs> Fred's company, Praxis, went on to prime several significant efforts, of which I was lucky to be a partner on several times. And so we have had a friendship over the last, I guess, seven years. It's hard to yeah. imagine. It's been seven, eight years now. Yeah, it is actually hard to imagine. Like things are moving very fast. And for those listening, Fred is not Fred Funk. <laughs> so another interesting story between Fred Fouth, who I am talking to, and not Fred Funk, <laughs> is that Fred Fouth was invited to a lunch for a contract that we won because Fred Funk had helped me on <laughs> And I forgot about I, that. I didn't have the guts to tell Fred because he's my friend and he's been helpful and, you know, no big deal that he was an extra person at lunch. So he was like, oh, this is cool. I'm invited to a lunch. Yeah, you sent me an invite. It was like, come to lunch, having a thing. Well, that was a good time. That's not the only time that's happened. Actually, one time Fred Funk won an award at some golf thing. And I like misheard the announcer's name. And so I went up and accepted the, the, the thing. And I sat back down and one of our friends, Coop, he was like, they didn't call your name. <laughs> what? Tell us a little bit about your job today at Nexus Solutions. I'm a vice president at Nexus. There are three of us in the company, two of the former owners of Praxis, and I was a manager at Praxis, and we broke off last year, 2020. And it's a partnership of three people right now? Correct. What is your role there? What are you focused on? So the, the truth is all three of us are really doing everything. I would say that we're naturally sort of, we're developing some expertise around what we're doing. So we're all doing interviewing. We're all doing staffing of jobs. We're all working to get on subcontracts, working to understand needs on those subcontracts, matching staff skills. I've spent more time than I've ever spent before inside of IT infrastructure and NIST compliance. It's a very complicated area. We, we obviously, there's a lot of regulations that have come out recently and the, the whole industry is moving towards CMMC level three and you have to be fully NIST compliant. And we've been working, there's a Maryland program that helps small businesses get prepared we enrolled in that a couple months ago and went through an assessment process. But truly, at all my prior companies, I had a large IT organization that you could just ask any question you oh, wanted Oh, I know. To. Yeah. And then when you go back to micro small business, it's like, you know, I'm logged into administrative <laughs> websites trying to figure out how to get things done. I'm creating accounts for new staff, right? Oh, I know. How big was Praxis when you joined Praxis? I think we were doing about somewhere around $60 million a year or something like that. So big. It was already a, a very successful company when I arrived. One of the major things I've experienced, and I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, but when you are a little company, it is quite a difference 
between joining a company where there's a person for that and there's a person for this. I remember talking to a mentor who supposedly worked at a small business and he was like, well, you have your capture manager and then you have your proposal manager and then you have like the tech volume lead. And I was like, Jesus, I am all of those things. (laughs) I am capture plus I run payroll and I also was the IT person for a really long time. I remember being on vacation. New employee came on. I had to go give them an account. And it's a very humbling experience, I would say, because also the the person at the big company is buoyed by being at a big company. They don't even have a sense of what it's like to have to do all of those things. So has it been an adjustment for you to go back to the beginning? For sure. So just anytime you're doing capture inside of the federal space, a great example is, let's say you're meeting with a teammate and you need to flow them a non-disclosure agreement or you want to send them a teaming agreement. At a big company, you have a whole department that does that for you, right? And that negotiates terms and conditions, which every company does, you know, their own slight variations on T's and C's negotiations, you know, at the, when you're at a big company, you send it off to a subcontracts person and they send it to the subcontracts person on the other side and it all happens by magic behind a curtain. And then, you know, five days later, they say, hey, that's fully executed. When you're at a small business, all of that comes right back out into the what you actually have to do yourself. That's another place where Jerry, Bill, and I have been sort of specializing. Like Jerry has done much more of our contract and teaming types of negotiations and NDAs and He's got a little bit more experience in that than I do, for sure, in terms of looking for the major things that we need to be careful about and that kind of thing. But it is different going from an infrastructure where you have departments. Even you've done this, right, as you're trying to figure out all your benefits stuff. When you have an HR department, it's very nice. They can they can spend a lot of time figuring out all the little moving parts of benefits when it's just a couple people you know, you rely on some consulting expertise, but there's a lot that falls back to the owners. Yeah, I was really excited. My friend joined and now she's my IT department. So she's overseeing our architecture and the subscription services and pulling the cats and dogs together because each person originally had their own Adobe account and now we're pulling it together into an enterprise Adobe account and cleaning that up. And it's all quite a bit of work. So it's the three of you. Are you How many vendors or partners are you working with to get things done? We have a cost and finance and accounting consultant. And so a lot of the time carding and billing and that kind of stuff is actually being handled by a person who's an expert in that. But in terms of like an admin to help with something like calendaring or uh, organizing meetings. No, that's all on us ourselves. <laughs> and and that was actually a difference coming from my first company, which was Booz Allen. Um, I worked at Booz Allen for 10 years. A very, very large government contractor. Very, very large contractor. You know, at Booz Allen, we did have some administrative help. And I remember moving to Praxis, Bill and Jerry, who at the time were the president and executive vice president of Praxis, they didn't have any admin support of their own, really. They did all their own calendaring and all their own meeting organization. And it was just a cultural difference there. So I don't anticipate that we'll ever have much in the way of direct admin support. I mean, we'll certainly have support for staff as we grow. But I think our calendars are always going to be our own responsibility. I've tried passing off my calendar. And then I had to take it back because 
it's just such an important part of your day and your week. But I have recently moved to trying Calendly, which is how we scheduled this. Yeah, it's a nice tool. I found it before awkward. A lot of times people would send you an intro email. You've never met them before. And then they're saying they're asking you for something and then telling you to get on their calendar. So I've been phrasing it in a very soft, womanly way. Like, would you mind trying this tool to reduce scheduling issues? (laughs) But it was a problem in the beginning. I didn't have it blocking off enough things. So people, I was at my hairdresser's a month ago and in the middle of a meeting, she was pissed. You know, I was trying to get my hair rinsed out while I'm still on the phone. And I don't like to reschedule meetings very much because I believe, you know, you made the commitment and the time. So Calendly, I think has saved me some time. And I like that it does the automated reminders and you can set it up for specific meetings. Tell me about your architecture for running the business compared to, you know, Praxis was a $60 million business when you were there. And now you're at a brand new baby business. So you're very experienced. How long did you guys work together before Nexus started? Was it 10 years? It was about 10 years. Yeah. About okay. 10 years of practice. So the three of you know each other very well. Yes. Jerry and I, because we were both in business development at the old company, we were working together every day. And then certainly Jerry and Bill and I were all together a couple times a week. And I think Jerry and Bill probably every day as well, staying coordinated. Is it a different dynamic, though, with it just being the three of you versus having more members of a leadership team? It's certainly different in that there was a lot of support functions that the old company had available that we're just doing on our own. But because we're not as big, some of those things aren't as pronounced yet, right? Like we had a we had directors at the old company that were running large business groups. Well, we don't have large business groups at this point. So the fact that those people aren't here isn't something that's screaming out at this point. I think it might start to at, you know, 20, 30 employees where it's like, okay, we've got a lot of people, like a lot of moving parts across the contracts that we're on and delivering on. How do we manage that better? So I think in terms of architecture, if there was any architecture, it would be putting the customer first, putting employees right behind them and kind of as close to them as possible, right? Like the perfect existence for a company or ethos for a company is where you're delivering really great product to your customers and your employees are growing all the time. Like if an employee feels like I go into work every day and I make a meaningful contribution to the world, to this customer space, and the customer comes out and says, I love the people, I love the engineering, I love the results I get from this small business, that's a match that is really unparalleled. And so we're really focused on that. A distant third for us really is what we call fiscal responsibility at the old company, or I forget what we've we've called it here, but it's essentially the concept of making sure the business makes sense. There is an actual numbers thing behind the customer and employee situation that you have to be cognizant of, but neither of my partners nor I ever want that to become the forefront of the business. Right. It's like when when that starts being your major decision-making driver, you stop doing the right things. And if you do the right things and you just stay relentlessly focused on that piece with an awareness of the business side of it, it's way better for the customers. It's way better for the employees. And we've seen 
other companies in the industry that almost they reverse those two. And then it feels a little bit like it falls apart. And then our fourth core value is about giving back to the community. So our thought process around this is if you do what's right for your customers and your employees and that that relationship is killing it and you're being really thoughtful about the fiscal aspects of the business so that you're making good decisions, that should leave a lot left over to make a big difference in the local community. And so we've already done, even though we're in a pre, we were in a pre-revenue stage until very recently, we were already doing some charitable giving and trying to get involved and have Nexus be known as a company that wants to be involved in the community and giving back, right? And I know you guys do a lot of that too, because I follow your LinkedIn and see all the great work that Nile is doing. And I think we want to emulate that and we want to emulate some of what we did at, at the old company in that way. Now, I remember when we had that first lunch, you had said, you should really meet Bill Donahue, who is a pillar in our industry. Praxis was an absolutely incredible company. The government absolutely loved Praxis. We should talk about those in present tense. Praxis is a, is a great company and the government loves Praxis. They're yes. a very good company. And they were great to partners. They are great to partners. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Praxis was sold in what year? Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. Twenty seventeen, but they're still operating as Praxis in the market as like a wholly owned subsidiary. So Praxis is owned right. by General Dynamics at this point. It's run by uh, Frankie Velez, who is a wonderful man, and he's been a great partner to Nyla. Nyla still does a lot of work with Praxis today and expects to do work with Praxis in the future. And I expect we will do work with Nexus Solutions as well. As we hope so. We now, hope so. You're in the, now you're back at the micro business size. But at that lunch, you laughed. And I don't know what I was wearing, but I'm probably like all glammed up uh, for a lunch with um, buffalo chicken salad. And you said, you and Bill are so different. You know, Bill is not focused on money at all. And I don't know if I appear to be focused on money, but I think what he and I do have in common is I've never really been concerned with my take-home salary or my take-home earnings at the end of the year, or buying some boat, or buying some flashy car. To me, it's really been a, a game of love, like where I wanted to create an environment and a culture that I would love to work at. And what were those special things? How could we bring the best out of people and create an environment where people felt like they could bring them best selves to work and where their ideas could be heard and, and make a successful impact to the government. And 
it's a long game because you're really investing in people and the client and the future. And as a small business owner, you just keep taking that money and putting it right back into people. When I started my business, we lived in my husband's bachelor pad. So we were fortunate that we were essentially able to live on one person's salary, you know, had older cars and just kept really all the money kept going to the person you had to woo that maybe the other company focused on selling as fast as possible was offering them some crazy salary. But to get them to your company because you believed it was a great strategic move, maybe you match that same salary. And so I think that was the most surprising thing to me learning from a business owner is you look at other business owners and you think, wow, they're so rich. I did not understand how much of the money really does get put back into the business so significantly or saved to then invest in a significant way in the business. You did a great job explaining the architecture strategy of the business, but I wanted to geek out with you now that you're the IT guy and you have CMMC coming. What architecture have you picked? Have you gone all in on Microsoft, which a lot of people have because it's all you know, approved and ready and CMMC ready. We absolutely have. (laughs) We absolutely have. You know, we looked at a couple different options. And just like with any company, I feel like you're making a long-term bet on a partnership. Right. And I think Microsoft is a good bet. And I've been a little bit surprised that some of the functionality that's available on the commercial side hasn't come into the higher higher level security systems or whatever. And it's because on the commercial side, they have millions of customers. And on the high side, they have, you know, the higher clouds, they have less customers and there's a process for migrating stuff over. So there's a little bit of a slowness in the uptake, but living in an ecosystem is nice. I mean, you kind of know how it's supposed to work and you have the ability to, you know, submit tickets or whatever to get problem solved. And I think it could be a mistake to spend too much time trying to grow your own because you're trying to save a couple bucks a month on licensing, for example. You know, you could spend many, many hours of IT time and blow way through a licensing budget. It just depends on how you look at that problem. But so far, we've been happy. Is Microsoft at Praxis as well? Yes. And were you fully using Teams at Praxis? Not the way we are now. And in fact, we kind of started on Teams just a, maybe a little bit ahead of the pandemic, like having a couple like work-at-home types of meetings. And then the pandemic, of course, has just accelerated virtual meeting to be the norm, which I love. I, I really do love being able to walk out of my bedroom and down to my office and get started. It's, it's actually really great. So yeah, we're, we're fully virtual at this point. And we are using Teams. And I think as we do more billable work and we're growing the actual customers we're supporting. And if we end up doing product work on the back end, we'll use some more features of Teams than just the video conferencing, which is really what we use most of the time now. Do you use anything that's a Slack-like feature for chatting? We've dabbled in it, but we haven't done it a lot yet. And I've used Slack for some other jobs. Jerry has used Slack on some other stuff. And One of the big challenges right now is the email problem with Slack. Like you can have half of a conversation going on in Slack and you can have half of a conversation going on in email and you just have to be able to make sure that like there's a culture of doing one or the other, but not almost either or because things can get lost. 
We have switched to using Slack for almost all internal discussions. So anything internal is really discussed across Slack. So an external email came in, right? And we're definitely talking to clients, partners, et cetera, via email. Some of our vendors that we work quite closely with, I'm working with a capture team that's helping us with DOD and civilian capture. And we have them in Slack as well because it just gets lost in email. Like, what did you say? Where is it? You know, where's the link putting us there? So that's been our experience. But I was wondering, you guys had been in person working together at an office for so long. And not only are you a new company, plus COVID. So now all three of you are working from home pretty consistently. Yes. What's that change been like for you? I think it helps to have 10 years of history whenever you go into that environment, right? I would say we've gotten really used to it really fast. I certainly would like to get back in person. And I think especially for some of the proposal brainstorming sessions that we've done and things like that, doing them over teams would be pretty hard. There is an actual advantage to having everybody sit in a room and have a giant whiteboard, or in the case of our previous company, a room that's just painted whiteboard on all four walls, and you can sort of have everything going and the discussions going, and you can walk from your desk back to that giant whiteboard. There's something collaborative and special and sort of gets everybody in the right brainstorming space that just doesn't happen with a team's environment. And I think some of that is humans naturally talk over one another a bit. And when you're on a virtual environment, you have to be very careful because you can't actually hear a cacophony of voices coming in at the same time. And you want to be able to have some of those small side conversations take place inside of a greater brainstorming session or have a little bit of the dynamic of like ideas flowing across one another that the virtual environment slows down. So I do look forward to getting back in person at some point, but being a micro small business, we're not going to have a physical location for a little while at least just to save, you know, overhead buildings cost money. Are you shopping for a location right now? We have not done anything like that yet. I think that may come, but not at this point. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA certified 8A hub zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. How did you develop your website? Who was responsible for it? Did you, and what platform did you use? I'm very curious. I think we're on Squarespace. And honestly, Jerry's wife, Karen, got into some web development and she did all the work for us. So she's done great. And, you know, you can go out and visit nexussolutions.com. Small plug there. And (laughs) we've all kind of collaborated with some of the content, but in terms of actually interacting with the tool to do it, that's all been Karen. And it's really nice. She's taken the entire thing on and taken the burden off of the company and we're doing other stuff. And if you need a change to the website or whatever, you just send it to Karen and put this in. I would say our website is informative, it quickly conveys the most important information, especially to staff, which is what we're trying to do right now, right? Trying to attract talent. This is the offering of Nexus. This is why you should come here. I do think a website's really important. 
if for no other reason, you know, if you're trying to attract talent, they have to be able to come and see what's the company about. If I had to get a quick snapshot of like, what's the ethos of this company? What kinds of people do they hire? What kinds of people don't they hire? Like there's a filter perspective on that, right? If you bake cakes, we're probably not the right place to come apply for a job because we don't have those positions. I think a website is at least important in that respect in our industry and a place where people can point their friends. Word of mouth is one thing. Yeah, you should come in and meet this person, but it's really great if you should come in and meet this person. And and by the way, go check out the website and you'll see everything you need to know about working for this place. And it's all about multiple brand impressions, right? And building relationships with folks through multiple venues. In my marketing business, a lot of advice that I give people is to actually put real faces on the website to try to move away from stock images as much as possible because it legitimizes your business so much more than simple websites that have stock imagery, random numbers. People don't know if you're actually a real business. Are you leading Capture today at Nexus? I'm not spending any of my time doing Captures today. We are in the process of looking at a few jobs and we certainly hope to be priming sooner than we did at the other company. I wasn't there at the beginning of the other company, but coming in with a lot of experience, Jerry and I certainly especially, we have a passion for writing proposals, you know? So we have been helping partners write proposals, obviously joining on teams, and there's a lot of work that's always being recompeted. We're we're trying to be really good partners and get us prepared for the next endeavor. How did you grow up? And end up being a capture manager. What did you think you were going to do when you were like in high school? And what was your dream job? I feel like I had an easier time than most kids. So my parents bought me my first computer when I was in seventh grade. I had begged mom and dad, I have to have a computer. Uh, I remember my first computer. It was a Packard Bell 386SX20. And that, that computer had a turbo button on the front of it that changed it from 6 megahertz to 20 megahertz so you could slow it down in case it was screaming too fast, (laughs) which is just hilarious. Uh, It had 2 megabytes of RAM. So if you're good with computers, you could tell I'm not super in the early phases of computers. It wasn't an 8086 or an 8088. It was a 386. I lived on that computer. Were your parents into computers? How did you even know to ask for one? Or how did that all come about? Not at all. I think my godparents had a computer and when we would go over and visit them, we would play games on them or something like that. And, and I just started like everywhere I would be in a, a retail shop or whatever, and they'd have a computer magazine. I'd be like drawn to that. And so I kept telling my, my mom, like, no, you have to, we have to get this kind. And they put me off for probably a year and a half. My parents were of relatively modest means. My dad was like a shipping manager inside a manufacturing company that my grandfather owned, actually. And my mom was a homemaker and took care of us and and whatnot. So they ultimately in life, when my grandfather passed away, my dad inherited with his sister their business. And that provided our family really some opportunity and a nice financial boost that we didn't have. We grew up in a pretty small row home that was my parents made a a home out of. So it was a great childhood, but my parents wanted to give us more opportunities. So we were in like maybe a difficult school district where I grew up. Did you grow up in Baltimore city? We were in Baltimore County, but we were right on the edge of the city. It was really important to my mom to send us to private school because she felt that that was going to give her kids this leg up. And she would talk to me like even from 
probably elementary school, like, you know, you're going to go to college. Neither of my parents went to college. My dad actually didn't graduate high school. He went to work at like 16 years old for his father. Where are you in your, in your family lineup? You have brothers and sisters? I have two older sisters. The one right above me did go to college, like for a full bachelor's degree. And the one above her went to community college and ended up becoming an, a, like a bookkeeping accountant. Both have been successful in their own rights. But mom was really big on like, you're going to have a better, you're going to do better than, I, than we did. It's a little bit emotional for me to think about. My, both of my parents passed away with COVID this year. Yeah, I'm so sorry. And right after each other. Yeah. So anyway, back to the computer. So I just begged mom for a computer. She finally... Was there any computer in the house at all? No, there was no computer. So you not only begged for a computer, but you got the first computer in your whole family. Yeah, I got the first computer. Was it in your room? It was not. No, it was actually in our basement. And my parents at the time had no interest in doing anything computer-wise. So my dad worked for my grandfather's manufacturing company and their front office was all computerized, right? So I did occasionally like go into work with him or he would take me in and I would see all the computers and like, I got to get on this. So they eventually got me my own Packard Bell 386 and and I just loved it. And I started a bulletin board system. Are you old enough to know what those are? I'm older than you. Are you older than me? Oh my God. This is the funny thing. I think it's so fascinating. You're way more mature than I am (laughs) in behavior and everything. But I think I'm like eight years older than you. Well, there you go. (laughs) I started calling bulletin board systems, which if you don't know what those are and you're listening to the podcast, you should totally look them up. It's kind of a precursor to the internet for about a year and a half. And then I was like, I got to start my own. So I using up your family's landline too. (laughs) I started like almost immediately lobbying for a second phone line, which my parents eventually sprung for like a year and a half after. They didn't make you get a job to pay for it. I did like lawn stuff, but I was in ninth grade. So I guess so. (laughs) I was 12. So they got a land, they got an extra landline into the house and I ran this bulletin board called the dog pound for a couple of years. And you can actually still find like little remnants out online. And that really got me into computers. And I went through high school and they didn't really have much of a computer curriculum at all at the time. It was almost like computer basics, like the class they had. So I was just by working at home, I was like kind of beyond that course, right? It was almost like all my friends knew and I knew like, oh, friend's just going to do computer stuff when he gets older. Like that's obvious. And that was obvious to me. So I applied for college. I got into Loyola, Baltimore, and got into their computer science program and started computer science there. And I I had done some hex editing and like hacking of the bulletin board software, but I had never done straight out development. So you hadn't even done a simple for loop program in high school where you're plotting pixels on a big graph. Nope. Nope. Did not do that. I mean, no programming whatsoever before you went off to college. No, I did. There was like one little club thing I did for a while that did some work in C, but it didn't go anywhere. And it, and I just remember like being very confused about it (laughs) when I was in it. It was probably sophomore year of high school or something, and they disbanded. So I just kept going back with what I had been doing. I did do some basic programming because all DOS machines back then had basic built in. And so I did understand some conceptual stuff, but it wasn't really till my first week of college when I was in CS201 at the time, where it was like, okay, we're going to write Hello World. We're going to compile it. Did you take the family computer? Did you take the Packard to school with you or did you get a (laughs) new one? No, my parents bought me a laptop for college. Wow. It was really nice. And it it was a 486 
25, I think, laptop. So it was like one of the very early gen laptops. I think the battery lasted for an hour. So yeah, just went through four years there and then graduated in 2000. Did you get a bachelor's of arts or a bachelor's of science? Bachelor's of science in computer science. And also a minor in business. Well, I, I didn't actually finish the minor. That was the weird thing where I could have gone to school for another semester and gotten all the business classes, but then it was like, or I could just graduate right now with my bachelor's and start working and get an MBA, which is what I did. Did you intern while you were in college or did you just go straight through? I did. I interned for a small accounting software company called Gap Software, G-A-A-P Software. My friends thought I worked at The Gap, <laughs> like selling clothes, but I worked for Gap Software for like two and a half years during summers. And then they would have me, it was like any hours I could give them. And before that, I actually worked for my grandfather's manufacturing company that my father owned at that point with his sister. I did like IT help desk support type work through the summers and stuff like that, starting in like freshman year of college, I think. How'd you get this Booz Allen job? Right. That's a big deal. I think most people listening or who know the industry are like, ooh, you went straight from undergrad to getting a Booz Allen job. How's that happen? I actually had a friend who did on-campus interviews and he had gotten hired by Booz Allen five months before because he graduated at the end of the prior summer. He did college in like three years and two months, which was pretty impressive and was paying, largely paying his own way, which was awesome. And he got the job at Booz. And as I was approaching graduation, I said to my friend, like, do you think they'd be interested in talking to me? And they had a referral bonus thing, of course. So he was like, absolutely, you've got to come talk to us. <laughs> and I interviewed with them. And I remember that was the first time where I realized, like, this computer science thing might really work out. <laughs> like, Because I interviewed with them. And then they sent me an offer like a day later. And it was a great offer. Yeah, you didn't even know that it was a high starting salary, like as one of the highest starting salaries. No, well, I probably did know that there was like, quote unquote, good money in computers. But I got this offer and I took it home to my mom and dad. And they were like, are you kidding me? Like, You remember what it was? I do. I feel embarrassed saying it out loud, but it was $58,000. Oh, nice, nice. I graduated in 1998 and I got... 48 with a 2K signing bonus. Okay, so it's pretty comparable. And it was two years later, like things were ramping up. You know? I know, uh, pretty comparable. You got 10K more two years later. <laughs> I think their first offer with me was 56 and I asked for 60 and they came back with 58. Nice. So. Mine said no, I did try negotiating. And yeah. they said, this is what we offer all college graduates. Was your wife a computer science major? She was not. And we met each other two years after I graduated college, I think. I met her at a church function. Was it love at first sight? No, because I was half dating. It was half dating. Isn't that a weird term? But everybody <laughs> knows how weird personal relationships could be. I was half dating another girl at the time. And so I brought her to this college group. So the first time I met my wife, like it was like, hi, this is my friend. <laughs> Mary. And so she was she was actually coordinating like the attendance or something or taking names and emails so you could get on the email list of the group. And that's how we met the first time. And the girl that I was sort of seeing at the time, she ended up going off to study abroad because she was still, I think, a senior in college and she was doing a study abroad thing. And so we just, we grew apart. And then 
you know, my wife and I like, like I would say sort of started hanging out and then slowly got together and it was a little bit tumultuous actually, but we eventually like really committed, like we're going to just date. And then we got married a year and a half or later. How many years have you been married now? 17. So when I met you, you had just probably crossed the 10 year line and you're quite enamored with your wife, I which am. is why I asked if you had, if it was true love, you're quite enamored of your wife. You have how many children together? Five. You have five children. And you talk about your wife in glowing terms a lot. I don't know if you know that. And it's it's quite sweet from being a woman in computer science. When a man talks very positively about his wife, it is typically an indicator that I will have a good relationship, uh, working relationship with them. And I don't know if it's because I won't speculate why. I will just say from data, my data is when, um, and and people do talk about their relationships quite a bit at work, I think. It's, it's quite interesting. You definitely can tell who's married from comments they, happily married or not happily married from comments they say. And Fred talks about how absolutely amazing his wife, Kim, is. She is amazing. As Shana knows, all of our kids were adopted. Our two oldest were adopted internationally, and our three youngest were adopted through Washington, D.C. foster care. And my wife homeschools all five of them. How did the idea to homeschool all five of these children come about? Was it something you were opposed to or you talked about even before you had kids? Actually, Kim swore off, we're definitely not homeschooling. Like, I will not be that person. I, you know, she had a career that she was working in. When we adopted our first two kids, they were two and a half year olds. They're twins, two and a half years old. And they came to us and Baltimore County required as mandatory kindergarten. And so they would have started kindergarten at age five. And because they switched languages coming to America and because of the trauma of switching families twice, really, they switched families twice from a birth family to a foster family early on and then to our family. I'd say they had some delays and they had attachment challenges. And so Kim was like, you know, I think I can just homeschool kindergarten because she was staying home with them anyway and trying to get them very acclimated. And then it was like a snowball. So while you are raising five kids together with your wife, having a thriving career as a capture manager, you also had one or more side businesses. Most of the time that we've been doing things, we've had at least a rental property. And we do manage a rental property in Ocean City right now. My wife does most of the coordination for that. And that doesn't really require a ton of time just because it's all on VRBO and Airbnb. Kim and I have figured out how to be profitable with relatively little time investment. So we have that business. And then the more interesting one is back in 2008, I actually had an engineer quit from Booz Allen I basically met with him and I said, I don't really understand why you're quitting, right? Because you make $85,000 a year. You're obviously a very talented developer. You're going to be moving up in your career. You're going to have big opportunities. And he basically said, well, the reason why I'm quitting is because last year on my blog, I made like $360,000. Repeat that amount again, Fred. Right. I was like, excuse me? On in a blog? one year? In How one old year. was he? He was 25, maybe. 25 years old. What was the blog about? It was a personal finance blog. It was one of the early PF blogs. He had found a couple interesting ways to make money by basically Google sending traffic to his site 
and people clicking through ad links and and signing up for credit cards and bank accounts and whatnot. He was earning a commission off of that flow through. We had just adopted our twins and they were two and a half years old. And Kim and I were very like, if it's not obvious, we're pretty high energy people. We like to like have a very active life. I told my friend, I just need something to fill the time. The kids are going to be going to bed at like 7.30 at night because they're two and a half years old. From 7.30 to 11, I could invest my time in something pretty much every night. Could I start a blog? Because if I could make like $1,000 a month, that would be worth it and it would be a hobby. And he said, I am positive if you start this blog, you can make $1,000 a month. Like it's not even a question to me. You just got to stand it up and just get started. I actually asked several different friends would you partner with me in this blog? And the first few people I asked were like, uh, I don't think so. It's just I don't really like writing or I don't know. It just sounds like a lot of work. And I went to Ethan. That sounds terrible that he was like third on the list, but it wasn't a priority list. I didn't even know what I was getting into. It was more like, do you want to try this thing out with me? And maybe we'll become really rich. <laughs> well, why did you want to partner? I'm definitely that kind of person, right? Like I have to be doing it with somebody in order to stay motivated, especially in this blog startup world, which is a little bit different than the Nexus startup world. The blog startup world is like, I didn't even know what the business model was. Like I just, I figure I'm going to stand up a website and somehow, some way the money is going to start coming in. And I think in the first month we made like $3 or something. And well, that's amazing that you made money even just the first month. Yeah. And then the next month we made $20. And the next month after that, we figured out something and we made $80. And How did you make your money? Were you selling something? So blogging works the same as basically the whole entertainment and information industry. And the idea is somehow you have to attract eyeballs onto your content. And when you do that, then you can sell ad space or whatever through those links. Our blog was really, I I like to think of it as trying to produce perennial content. The reason why I picked home improvement as a topic was first off, because I loved home improvement. I don't know if I mentioned it was a home improvement blog yet, but it was. And we had a new home that we had bought. So we had a lot of projects to do. And I liked writing. So I figured this was kind of all going to work out. In this 2008 timeframe, there wasn't a lot of competition for content. And so if you think about the way Google works, when you type in something into Google, it has to return you 10 results. That's the business model of Google. So our thought was, we'll write content and we'll just try to get content that's good enough to rank in those top 10 results. We actually started making enough money two years in to that endeavor for my partner to go full-time on it. So I stayed in our primary industry and my, my partner, Ethan, went full-time on the site And so we were paying his salary and benefits and whatnot. Did you create an LLC for the business before you started blogging? Yes. You consciously made it a business, not just a hobby to start with and then created the business. Yeah, well, so there was about a five-month period where it was just a hobby. And then when my buddy Ethan came on board, the first thing I was like, you know, I think we need to create an LLC. Is it 50-50 between the two of you? It's 55-45 me. Did the wives come on as partners? They did. Now, they the way we structured it is essentially the families are 55, 45 at this point. And we have, if somebody's putting work into it, they get a salary ahead of the ownership. So when my partner went full-time, we were paying his salary out of the revenues, and then we'd have a bottom line profit, and then that would get split 55, 45, right? So he, yeah. was, he was making a real full-time salary before we did that split. 
And that ended up working out. It was, I think he worked it for about two and a half years. And there was some major restructuring that took place in the Google algorithms and how some of our large partners were viewing their sort of internet presence and how much revenue they were doling out. I went back to my partner after about two and a half years. And I said, you know, if you look at the revenues we're bringing in and sort of the direction of things, I think it would be good for you to go back to a regular full-time day job and us to go back to working this in the nights and weekends. At first, I will tell you that that felt like a defeat, if that makes sense, because, you know, we didn't grow it into five or six people like, or, or, or a hundred people. But for the purposes of what that blog did in both of our lives, I think it was a huge win. For one, for, for our family, all the revenues and profits, we just, we basically saved. And for him, he was doing like an IT-oriented job at a hospital that was more of a lower-end salary. When he came to the blog, we gave him a big raise. And he learned all of these new skills around search engine optimization and content production. And then he leveraged all those skills into his next job where he went and started doing this work for like a very large company. So as we started like retrospectively looking at what is success and failure, right? Well, the blog never went bankrupt or anything. I mean, in fact, it still just continues to like make money because of the virtue of passive income, the way the internet works. It might not make money forever. It certainly doesn't make as much as it used to. That whole experience was very good for us in learning like some of the basics of being responsible for your own business and trying to grow it. And we were part of what I feel like was the first major boom of the side business. All of a sudden in America, especially in the early 2000s, and especially with the coming online of the whole internet revolution, many of my friends like had a side business. Like some of them developed apps for phones and they had these main full-time gigs that they were working in, but they were dabbling off in the side business. And the, the guy who got me into blogging, obviously, the side business became the main business. By the way, he ended up selling that blog for $3 million like three years later. You can have something that you do for your 40s or 45 hours or 50 hour a week job, but you can also do something on the side that is meaningful and moves your career forward and sort of gives you an opportunity to earn some extra money and learn a lot of what it takes to do all that. Did this cause conflict in your relationship that you are working a full-time job very intensely, right? Because you're competitive, you're driven, so you're very into your full-time job which you're leaving the house to do. And then you're coming home. You have two young babies in the beginning and you're spending all this time on a blog. Now, a lot of people, they just immediately hear that and think there's no room in my life for that. What was your experience? There are times, there were times where it was really stressful, but it was never as stressful with the blog because you could set your pace with the blog. So if Kim would be like, okay, we really, have to, we really have to focus here. I could put it down because it was mine. It was way harder back at Booz Allen days. We went through a four-month proposal timeframe right after our kids joined us. So our twins came to us in January of 2007. And probably in the March to June timeframe of 2007, Booz Allen did like five proposals back to back and I worked all of them. And I was working 70 hours a week, every week. That really, really strained our relationship. It's tough. It's tough. And you don't have control over any of those deadlines or the, you know, you just have to like grind it out. Tell me what book you've read that has really impacted you. 
I'm going to give you the sort of universal answer that you might get from Christians. I do actually read the Bible a good bit, and I'm really enamored with like Jesus's worldview. I hear Jesus's words call to me in a way that I don't think like not even from a super religious Christian standpoint, but when he says to like, to whom much is given, much is required. I hear that as a way to shape a business. Don't be stingy, focus on the customers, focus on the employees. Don't focus on the fiscal side. And so I see a lot. One of the reasons I was really excited about partnering with Bill and Jerry is because that's how Bill runs his life and runs companies. One book I really, really enjoy is called The Simple Path to Wealth by uh, J.D. Collins. Um, I don't know if you've heard of J.D. He's a blogger. He's a blogger in the personal finance space. And The Simple Path to Wealth is just a really relaxed and fun read about what it takes for your average person to become wealthy if they want to. One last question. Tell me something about yourself that might surprise us. When I was in high school, I weighed 350 pounds or college, early college, I weighed 350 pounds. And there was a point in college around junior year where I just like realized that being overweight is like, even though there's some habituated portions of my life that were leading to that, it was actually a choice. And I never knew that. And so I just started losing weight and I lost like 150 pounds in a year. Tell us about your special van that you have. I could have used that little thing. We have, um, Kronk, he's named after the Disney character in The Emperor's New Groove, who's like a really big, beefy, but kind of dumb guy and and who loves animals and kids and like is really good with animals and kids. That's why he's named Kronk, because he's really big and beefy. And he's a 12-passenger Nissan van. Isn't he his own blog as well? He has his own Facebook page, which he has not been diligent in. This was so wonderful. You are a wonderful storyteller. And I know we only scratched the surface on some things, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and share your stories with others. How can we reach you, Fred? NexusSolutions.com. And you can go to the About page and my contact information. You can email me right there. Or you can go to my blog, OneProjectCloser.com and find our contact information there. And how do we find Kronk on Facebook? Kronk Foth. And I'm pretty sure his account violates the terms of service of Facebook, by the way, because because he's not a real person, but he's a real person to us. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.